There must be some easier way to do this, Doctor. Always looking for the simple fix. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 36 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we're talking about fixing Voyager. Because, uh, look, I've made no secret on this show that Voyager is my least favorite iteration of Star Trek. Uh, it's at best problematic. And today we'll try to get at why this is uh, so for me and for a lot of other fans. Other fans like Married with Comics' own Jonathan Schaefer-Hames. He's with me today to set right what once went wrong. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. It's really fun to be here. Yeah, I mean, usually this network is all about finding your joy and we're supposed to be very positive. Mm-hmm. But this is going to be a bit of a downer, maybe. I don't know, for, for the, like the three fans of Voyager out there. <laughs> it could be. I've got to tell you, yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of it either. And I've had to, in prep for this episode, I've wound up having to watch it a lot more than I usually do. I, I don't think it's going to be that much of a downer. I think it might be more of a, a lot more of a historical curiosity aspect of it we could mm-hmm. lean into to get away from the, oh, God, why is Neelix in this show sort of thing. <laughs> you know. I mean, it's got good things because we're going to try to salvage it. We're going to yes. try to make it. And I mean, we're, <laughs> yeah, we're not making our own TV shows or anything. <laughs> 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 but our armchair opinions of this uh, as experts, what could be done better? What might have fixed it? And maybe we'll have the same fix. Maybe we'll have different fixes. Uh, but before we get into it, Jonathan, the listeners need you to prove your Star Trek cred with our usual quiz. So if you're ready, first of all, what is your personal connection or origin story with Trek? Okay. My first experience with Star Trek was when my mom took me to see Star Trek, the motion picture in the theater. Wow. It, it must have been at some sort of re-release, though. And They used to re-release movies in the theater a lot more back in the 70s and 80s. And I know it was at that point because I had already seen Star Wars, which I didn't see till 1980. And that's why she brought me to this, because I really liked Star Wars, and she figured I'd like another movie with Star in the title. She was wrong. Uh, I found <laughs> it really, really boring and confusing. I'm pretty sure I fell asleep. But Spock made a pretty big impression on me, as did the um, them walking on the ship at the end. That one stuck with me for a long time to the point that for a while I thought that Star Trek took place in a universe that had breathable air and space. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but my reintroduction and my actual introduction to it itself was actually it was Mad Magazine's uh, parody of Star Trek 3 was reading that uh, reminded me of it. And then a friend of mine who had both cable and a VCR, which were cryptic expensive luxuries back at the time had taped Star Trek three off of a movie channel and we watched it and I was able to remember the mad magazine parody and it got me interested. And right about that time it started running, uh, the original series started running in syndication on television. So 
And then the next gen came out a little bit after that. So not in any sort of recommended order did I get into uh, Star Trek. It's kind of similar to my own origin story because you just reminded me that, for me, Mad Magazine was the way that I first consumed the motion picture. So the motion picture, yeah, it was probably a reprint. Of course, at that time, it's like they were doing like a sci-fi issue or something and reprinting some material. But that's how I first experienced it. Then the the second time I experienced the motion picture, it was the novelization. (laughs) Mine too. And and I only saw the motion picture really 15 years ago or something. (laughs) Right. My my second experience with it was the novelization after I had started getting into, you know, Star Trek novels was Mm -hmm. kind of – I had a – I read a lot of those too. Once they started coming out, that was probably my primary. That and the comics were the were the way I got my most exposure to it until Next Gen came out. That's the origin story. What's your favorite iteration of the show? Uh, Deep Space Nine. If I mean, just with a honorable mention going to Diane Duane's novel universe. Hmm. I really like the Star Trek that she makes in there. It, it is for me. There's no real way to just to say what I mean here, so I'm just gonna say this. Uh, to me, it's almost like that's real Star Trek, and the Star Trek you watch on TV is propaganda films about the real Star Trek. It's to, <laughs> okay. it's to the extent I picture them slightly different than the actors in my head because they're kind of like a more. It's definitely a show that leans into the sci-fi and takes advantage of its unlimited budget to be able to deal with more aliens on the on the show and and uh she really hones what that federation is what that starfleet is they're equal parts diplomats explorers scientists and warriors and they will attack any of those roles with equal zeal you know warriors are the last thing they want to do but if you do cross the line they're going to come at you with everything that they have really like that but as far as things on the screen uh, deep space nine is by far just an amazing show. It really allowed it to get to a level of maturity that anything that came after it has to kind of go towards and compare itself to. Interesting answer. What's your favorite character from that, well, from any iteration of the show? McCoy, Dr. Leonard H. And what's your favorite alien species? I like the Romulans when they're used well. So in a couple so, of episodes. So hardly ever? Yeah, hardly <laughs> ever. Uh, when, it, <laughs> when it comes to aliens, they've come across. I love the um, Iotians. I love the idea of a, from Sigma Iosha, I love the idea of a race or a species that could read a dime novel and then say, let's make our whole planet like this. There's something really neat and goofy sci-fi about that. But uh, when it comes to, I'd say the Cardassians became my favorite aliens after a while. They're the probably the most three-dimensional of them. They've when it comes to how many different ways that they've had actors depict them that all kind of works together. It's really neat. So I like them. So that's your uh, three favorite alien species. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. Hey, I don't know if I'll, I never get to have this conversation again, so I got to make sure. Yeah, you make, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Cover all the bases. Okay. Let's start talking about fixing Voyager because, uh, well, we're too late for it. We're too late. late. There's, you know, seven years around there. It's done. I mean, there's nothing we can do to fix it. But uh, if we talk about first, like the big picture, uh, right. maybe get to the source of many of Voyager's problems as we see them from our point of view. Uh, Jonathan, what's the, the historical reality here? Put the show in context, if you will. All right. Well, in order to talk, say anything about this show, I think we have to set our uh, space slingshot coordinates to 1995. Well, God, that long ago. That was when uh, Jean Chrétien was only a few years into his 10-year term. Right. 
Uh, Thanks for the Canadian reference. You're welcome. Uh, that's when Bill Clinton's new left was butting heads with the emergence of the neocons. It's uh, 20th Century Fox, uh, which is a production network, had managed to create a fourth TV network to challenge the big boys at ABC, NBC, and CBS. And so Paramount took a look at this and said, we can totally do that. And so having a Star Trek show as its flagship was probably a no-brainer, given how their success in syndication with Next Generation and Deep Space Nine had, had come here. So that's how we got Voyager. Somewhere between conception and how it got to the show, there were numerous changes. But what, before the show was coming out, they were telling us it was going to be about a ship that was 70,000 light years away, and it was going to be a crew populated both by Starfleet and Maquis. And they really repeated that and hit that, that that was going to be a huge part of it. To the point that a lot of the Maquis stuff on Late Next Gen and Deep Space Nine were in part there, I think, to set that up. But then we got what we got. It Because it was a new network that they were trying to make, and this was the flagship show on that, they were suddenly in this brand new situation where it's weird. Someday I would love to have a conversation with you about how um, networks or how TV works in Canada and the U.S. Because the bits I've heard you talk about it fascinate me, and it's really <laughs> weird here. When it comes to syndication and network stuff, it's and it, what it all boils down to, it's about how you make your money. If you are a network show, every time slot with every show is getting compared to every other network uh, TV show at the same time. So you're talking ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox. They knew they were going to only have a certain amount of, of viewership anyway. And it kind of became about making sure they could maintain a small amount. They had two options. They could have either said, well, we've got only a little bit anyway. Let's do whatever we want. Or we got to make sure that we hold on to the ones we have in a much different way than they'd had to do before when it was syndication. And they had just sold – they could sell this, this uh, show to different networks. And it became a, a different thing. So I think a lot of – the problems we're going to talk about come down to a, at least in the beginning, of a fear of cancellation of a necessary to be a kind of a safe thing in order to make sure that the network didn't fail. I, I, agree, I agree with that. That they the show played it too safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the like the main problem, and from which many of the other problems stem. Although not necessarily, you know, we we had TNG which was an evolution of the original Trek. But then Deep Space Nine was a completely different take. Tonally, but also we're going to do a space station and it's going to be this hybrid crew of, not necessarily crew, you know, just like a large cast of characters, some of them Starfleet, many of them not. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do longer arcs and that that kind of stuff. Voyager is just a replacement TNG. So it's just another crew on another ship in another part of space and I don't think it really had its own identity. And the way they, they, they played, not only was it TNG light, it was also, they were always pressing the reset button. We don't want this show to change. We don't want this situation to evolve in a, the same way that Deep Space Nine evolved from a starting situation. If Deep Space Nine had been all the time, reset every time, exactly like the pilot, I mean, those characters would have been unlikable over seven years. But Voyager, dares do that. (laughs) (laughs) Voyager is the show where, I mean, the premise is the ship is far away from Starfleet. It has no backup. It has no space docks. It has no help from anyone because it's isolated. And yet somehow the damn ship is pristine after seven years. 
you know? Yes. And I mean, I've never, the show is more devoted to the maintenance and returning to the status quo than an episode of the polka dot door. Did I do that right? That's the only um, Canadian kids TV show I can think of. Well, well, you know, kids TV shows. If you're not the right age, that's or ours. the right, or in our case, the right language, <laughs> it's just over your head. It's like you were either watching, you know, whatever existed when you were a kid. Everybody else, when everybody talks about this kids shows, Absolutely. I always blank out a bit. Like uh, it's like when people are telling you their dreams. Mm. So I have no context for your I dreams. Gotcha. So it's like it's like I don't know what you're talking about. It's the same thing with kids shows. I feel like every well, my group is like younger than I. I am, so I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> we got fed a whole bunch of Canadian kids shows or ki- uh, educational kids shows throughout like the 1980s. Okay. <laughs> and that That's was weird. weird. That was like most, it was my first introduction to Canada. Okay. With, like with, Mr. Dress Up or something? It was the Polka Dot Door was the one that I just tried to do a joke about and it failed. <laughs> that was the place I learned that there were these strange people that lived to the north of us who pronounced Z like Z and they had a, a red flag with a maple leaf on it. Did they have a reset button? <laughs> they, <laughs> well, at the beginning, you knew what you were going to get if you turned on any episode of it. Oh, yeah. Every single what no exactly yeah good point voyager is that it doesn't want the viewer to be lost it expects you to miss episodes is what it does yeah it is not appointment television now a lot of that though is that's how tv was in the 90s there was very little we were deep space nine was kind of an anomaly because it was allowed to be because it was a syndicated show. A lot of the syndicated show, because of how they were able to sell themselves and the lesser expectations, were allowed to take risks like that. But most shows were just very episodic. You could turn on an episode of Friends and probably figure out what's going on. Sure, but even there, they would allow a level of development over time. Here, the characters weren't, they didn't get to develop because they weren't so much characters as repositories for needed features for the plot. You know, it's like, uh, I'll, I'll get at that later when we talk about character stuff, but it's, there's no development besides the only development I can think of is, uh, Harry Kim goes from playing a clarinet to playing a saxophone later. Hey, development. <laughs> yeah. I think that was, that was one of the, the characters that was most in need of development. I mean, everybody else after seven years and people are dying left and right. They're not really running a, a uh, you know, a population camp the way like <laughs> Battlestar Galactica was. But after all these people die, Harry Kim does not ever score a promotion. Nope. Ensign Kim. Even in the future, in one yeah. of the futures, he's still an ensign. <laughs> so that, that that speaks to like we don't wanna we don't wanna confuse anyone. Whoa. It's gotta be the same as the pilot. And I think that that was one of the big mistakes. But even when they tried to do development, they wound up falling on their face half the time. I mean Tom Paris and Bellana get married off screen. Yeah. And and Chicote <laughs> and Seven get together at the end because plot. Yeah. I mean, it, things like that. It was they were developed characters because it seemed like they were checking off boxes and needed to, but nothing organically was allowed to happen because it was always coming back to both literally and figuratively would get reset half the time at the end. What is your fix for that? What, I mean, how would you have envisioned the show? Had it been a little more daring, a little more like Deep Space Nine, which was going on at the time, right. it seemed like Trek was moving towards in a certain direction. And here comes Voyager to be very regressive as far as, as that goes, as far as television goes. How w- would the show have gone forward 
if you were Brandon Braga, <laughs> if you were in charge? Well, I, I have a couple of things. I do want to throw just the basic disclaimer of a, I'm just a guy who has 19 to 20 years of hindsight over this. Yeah, so yeah exactly. This is, no, no. <laughs> this is just goofing around. This isn't me like shaking my fist and saying how awesome this is. I think the main thing they needed to do is remember that episodic doesn't mean necessarily have to mean static. Next Generation was episodic. But the episodes didn't happen in a bubble. They uh, Voyager denied themselves so many story opportunities by never having the crew deal with stuff like resource limitations besides beyond lip service or all of the things that were in their own premise that they jettison at the end of the pilot. You've got built-in conflict there with two conflicting crews that you've obviously set up a devoted a lot of time to setting up. And you've got a situation where you can you could just point out, hey, we don't have any more shuttlecrafts because 17 of them have been blown up. Or how many proton torpedoes do they have? It's they, they could have just at any point dealt with stuff like that, kind of along the lines of where Battlestar Galactica eventually did. Or, or even if you want to stay in Trek. I think like the third season of Enterprise. The, third season the, of Enterprise. Yeah. With the Zindi, the Enterprise was really, really wrecked by the end of that. You know, so they they did do it within a season, and I'm thinking even in Voyager they have did it. I mean, I feel like Year of Hell is one of the better stories. Yes, and or if not the best in in the entire seven years of Voyager, and I feel like well, why why wasn't it like this? You know, why I understand you want your like your pretty ship, but anyway, at that point they were doing CG models anyway, so you could have had visible damage on Voyager all the time or something, but they wanted it to, to always look good. It just seems to go against I their know. premise. I, they, they threw away their premise. Exactly. And then while, by doing so, denied themselves so many opportunities. Having to deal with something like like a, they could really do some things with the Prime Directive or adherence to their old principles when it being confronted with something, with a horrific culture that they would have to deal with or die. Like if they needed a component for their life support system or they would die. And then it become a big debate about are we willing to um, adhere to the prime directive way out here in the ass end of the universe for the principle of it? I think they really had much more opportunities to deal with the prime directive in a better way than they did. Because, man, they did not deal with it in a very good way, I thought. They seem to have changed it into um, an excuse for Janeway to advocate destroying someone gleefully half the time. They would always interpret it in a way that that we have to not interfere so a ship so a society can get completely blown up by this asteroid. Well, it never meant that before, but now suddenly we can't um, interfere in any way. I didn't like that. One part of the recent button is the dreaded Gilligan's Island episodes mm-hmm. that we got. You know, the first season is full of Gilligan's Island episodes. If people don't know what I mean, because yeah. <laughs> they're they're too young for Gilligan's Island, it just means that you tease a way to get home. But of course, the premise prevents you from getting home. So we know it's a done deal. It's a foregone conclusion that this must fail. That something's going to happen where they're going to go, well, we got to blow up that wormhole because uh, bad aliens or something or because Prime Directive and we can't go home. So, so they burn you know, ways to go home. What is bad about that is that when it happens too often, which in the first season or first couple of seasons it did, it just seems ludicrous that there are so many ways to get home and then always a convenient plot reason not to. Kill again! <laughs> yeah. Neelix! Yeah, Neelix's uh, coconut phone that never works. You know? <laughs> but 
Yeah, and, and even, actually it does. <laughs> the last season does have communications with uh, with Starfleet. Yes, that's true. Through coconut technology. Which I thought was an improvement but that they needed by that point, but didn't exactly fix as much as it wanted to. But, but they could have done so many things like this, like deal with, have an episode that takes place over the course of a year. If you're going to do like a year of hell, rather than doing an entire year that then didn't happen and nobody remembers and it doesn't affect anything except for you, the viewer... Have an episode take place over an entire year of cruising where you deal with things like just the ennui of the daily grind situation in which there's no chance of getting a letter from home in which you're not going to which all you have is this ship and these people and all of that. They could have done some really good TV that way. They could have done several of it. They would have been a, a good way to move things on and to make it seem like at least they were trying to make progress back. That was the other thing is that half the, they were stopping a lot of the time to help to, to look into things and explore stuff. You're trying to get home. Yeah, either you are or you aren't. Right. So, but then I guess the, the 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 idea was maybe they'll find a way to get home at that particular pit stop or something. Sure. Uh, but but I mean they had the opportunity also to yeah doing a, a whole year within an episode or jumping from you know this episode where whenever and then whoop, let's jump. You know, next season, let's jump five years. Let's make this trip really last because it is a long voyage home. It's, it was mm -hmm. supposed to be like 40 years, whatever it's supposed to take. But no, it was never going to take that. And yet they could have. I mean, we'll talk about how they ended the show at the end. Well, we'll keep that for the end. But the finale is a particular problem for me. Let's, let's talk about the lack of conflict. I socialize with the crew, fraternize with aliens. I've even had sexual relations. I think that this is one of the problems that we identified, uh, in particular for me, how the Starfleet and Maki crews were integrated. It was supposed to generate ready conflict. You've got, you know, basically space rebels in the form of the Maquis, and then, sure, Chakotay is a former Starfleet officer, so you, you know, Janeway makes him first officer, and then they're supposed to be integrated into the crew, rather than, I, I don't know what you think about this, but rather than, they all get Starfleet uniforms None of their values are expressed. You know, Chakotay just sells them out. Mm -hmm. So they're all going to be Starfleet from now on. Some of them have been Starfleet before. Some of them are not. And there's like one episode that deals with this learning curve. And that's it. But if you're really integrating them, sure, fine. Why do they get different pips? Why must they be singled out so that all the Starfleet crew can know, oh, no, you've got those little capsule-shaped pips instead of the round pips. You're a Maquis. And you'll be a Maquis for seven years and will always say you're different. It isn't even like they, they had the opportunity to like earn their way to the right pips, that they didn't make a show about that. I mean, that was... Because Bellana and Chakotay keep the, the, those weird pips. Maybe they wanted them. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it makes as much sense as anything. There, Yeah, there's a couple of things. I agree wholeheartedly with you on that. That was one of my biggest problems about that just gets chucked away. And they had, just with Chakotay and Tuvok alone, that what they could have done with that. I mean, from here's Chakotay's here's perspective on this whole thing. He's fighting. He's worked his way up to being a captain of a crew in the Maquis. He has proven himself. He is devoted to this cause. He believes in it. He is risking his life. He's got this guy, Tuvok. He's a capable Vulcan. He's with him. He's his friend. He's got his back. Oh, my God. He was betraying me the whole time. Chakotay should take at least a season to trust Tuvok again. Mm. And they should at least deal with that ever. Chakotay was a really bad judge of character because uh, he was also uh, betrayed by Seska. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Seska. I completely forgot she was on the show until yeah. But Seska was was the conflict. You know, basically that was she was the the, the Maquis that was causing problems. But then she t- it turns out she's she wasn't a Maquis after all. She was a Cardassian spy, so she's a villain. So yeah, she's causing problems. It's not exactly what you promised as far as Maquis Starfleet clash in values. Well, here's my simple fix that would have made that impossible not to do anything with it. Okay. Put a Cardassian on the ship. Put an actual a Cardassian from Cardassia who is there with them, who's there with them on the mission to go into Badlands to do this, and gets tossed there with them. It's a constant reminder of the situation. The Marquis would never like him, but he would be there. An extra conflict for Janeway to have to deal with. Plus, you've got an obviously duplicitous character who can do things and he wouldn't be able to. There you go. I like it because as it was, you had all these Marquis. One of them. The, the one with the name <laughs> shut out and sent away because she was a villain. Belana and Chakotay get become more integrated, let's say, than others. Belana's a bit of a difficult person, I guess. But the bad boy was like Tom Paris, and he's Starfleet. They pulled him out of prison for this. But it's still, it's like, like the, the one bad boy in all of this is still a Starfleet officer with round pips. And all the Maquis sort of say, oh, okay, well, we're we're pretty quiet after all. That never quite worked out. But we're talking all about the characters, so let's talk about the characters. I want to keep uh, Janeway, Chakotay, Neelix, and Kess for later, because they've got their own particular problems, I guess. But as far as the rest goes, uh, I will just say that to be one of the problems is that... According to my readings, you are not here. Certain characters were favorites of the writers, while others really weren't. And I feel that that may have been true of TNG, for example. Maybe you've got fewer Troy episodes or fewer Crusher episodes. They had problems with the women. Uh, maybe fewer Geordi episodes in a way. Of course, Data and Riker and Picard are going to be popular. But in this case, I felt like, when am I going to get a Chakotay episode? Oh, crap, I got a Chakotay episode. Be careful what you wish for. Uh, or Kim. Kim was one of the worst. That Their characters never became interesting because the writers never got interested in them, especially after Seven of Nine came on board. And every episode was a Seven of Nine episode, maybe a Doctor episode, maybe a Doctor and Seven episode. <laughs> and then you had Tom, Janeway, and you know Tuvok maybe as other cool characters but the rest, lay fallow, really. Yeah, that is it. Uh, Voyager's characters all had what I like to call, uh, it's a worse version of Troy's lifelong love of Westerns that we find out about on one episode and then never hear about again. Yeah. It's, they're not so much characters, I was saying, they're templates that the writers slot would slot in when they need characteristics. And I think you're, we're talking about Bolana Kim Chakotay, to a lesser extent Paris, even though Paris winds up getting a lot of characteristics and whatnot. But, you know, they find a truck in space. Hey, Tom Paris knows all about trucks. Uh, we're we're going to need to do some boxing here. Good thing Chakotay apparently boxed in Starfleet Academy with Picard's bucket buddy as Mickey once. You know, all of these things. And then never again would you ever see them. So when taken in aggregate, it gets really hilarious with all of the things that Tom Paris was good at. If you look at him in the aggregate of it, he's not only the world's greatest pilot, he also can design and pretty much build on his own a Delta Flyer with a, the help of people looking on. Which is the, and uh, Maggie refers to this sort of phenomena as the um, forgetting that Troy is on your damn ship. <laughs> yeah. Because, okay. you know, there's so many times when they'll have a character doing something when it's like, where's Troy? Wouldn't this be something the counselor should be doing? 
And if, by the way, if there ever was a, a crew that needed a ship's counselor and could have built cool stuff about that, it was this one. They could have done some great stuff about PTSD and loneliness, but I, we ask too much. But Troy is a great metaphor, anyway, for most of these characters' problems. I mean, these characters like Troy are great characters conceptually. And when allowed to, they can have great moments and even be the anchor of some great episodes. But most of the time, she likes chocolate. Harry Kim yeah. plays the clarinet. When I did my reviews of the my full reviews of TNG, that came up a lot. I found it ridiculous that Troy's entire you know canon of of, of interests until that Western episode <laughs> where you know where that's left field. That's it. She loved chocolate. That's not a hobby. That's not <laughs> no, that's a dessert preference. <laughs> Harry Kim is um, sad because he can't meet a woman and he plays clarinet. And then so apparently he tries to play the saxo and then still doesn't get a woman or promoted. Blana yeah. is angry. Uh, move on. <laughs> and then she um, and Tom get married and they have a baby. That's it. They were seven years worth of shows that these in, many of which they were featured prominently, and that's all I can tell you about that. Don't even get me started on Chakotay, but we'll get to that later. How do we fix this? Are there characters yep. that should have been on there? Uh, what do you think? Well, I, a couple of ways. There probably should have been less characters, because if they were only going to care about a few of them anyway... You had an opportunity to just really focus with that. And then they could have actually killed off some of these extra ones. And it could have mm-hmm. been shocking and meaningful. They could have built it up like a year into it, two years into it. It could have been like when Picard was taken over by the Borg at the end of season, what was that, season three? was the end of both worlds. We didn't know that was early enough. Can you imagine if they would have, say, killed off Harry Kim in, in episode four? And then... And then here's um, Chakotay is in danger of stuff and they would occasionally, you know, take out a main character. That was but that was something you just knew was never going to happen. Yeah, that would have been my fix as well. Uh, Of course, my version of the show would have been more like the year of hell, like seven years of hell. And so the show would have been deadlier. And if you can't do anything with the character, get rid of them. I kind of wish they'd done that. I think if I don't know, you make the death resonant and very often when you kill off a character even a a disliked character that's the one episode people uh, suddenly you like that character just as he dies you know Uh joss whedon was very good at that for example Mm -hmm. and even pulled that trick the trick you mentioned in uh, angel the first season of angel has a guy in the opening credits uh and he's part of the cast and then i don't know episode eight or something yep killed off and you're, you're just shocked because that's not how TV works. That's what Voyager could have done. Exactly. Or, you know, failing that, if you didn't want to go that route, then they could have done something to make to really going again back to the playing up the Maquis and the Federation. It could have been you could have been telling two shows within one, either by having both crews on the same ship or keeping both ships for a little while, maybe. You know, you could go back and forth between the two and they'd have to occasionally team up to fight some greater threat and then like fly off, you know, slowly gaining respect and understanding for each other. That would have been could have been a way and that could have built into them being on the ship. You would have then had enough of their own baggage, which you could have then bounced off of other characters, which would have been new, which would have led to new relationships. It's like these guys didn't know how to write a TV show sometimes. (laughs) One of these characters, if we break it down, is Janeway. You know, I'm really easy to get along with most of the time. But I don't like bullies, and I don't like threats, and I don't like you, Color. Problematic character. I think she's very unevenly written. She's not the same character from season to season. My big problem with her, I don't know about you, is that she has to one-up every other captain. It does seem that way. Yeah, I hate the idea that you've set up your... uh, Okay, for the first time, the the show's going to focus on a female captain. Great. 
and then they have to over-egg the pudding, so to speak. It's like we can't, the audience can't respect a, a female captain unless, you know, she's better than Kirk and Picard roll and Cisco all rolled into one. She's yeah. got to be the one that destroys the Borg at the end where Picard obviously failed. You know, that kind of stuff. It's like even Cisco, who is by the end of the show, a living god, <laughs> is not as ludicrously powerful <laughs> as Janeway. I, I, they really make her unlike, it's like, you know, when they return in Nemesis, Picard calls Starfleet, or Starfleet calls Picard, and it's Admiral Janeway. I wanted to leave the theater. So it's like, I liked that. I, I hated it. I mean, it's <laughs> us like, oh. And she's calling him John Luke, and he's calling her Admiral, and I just wanted to, like... Your thoughts echo my own. I've got a few different ways about it. It's a, For me, it's like Janeway's a badly written Janeway fanfic character. Mm, okay. Yeah, I like, I like that. Because, you know, I've... I've, I've watched a bit of it, a lot more here and there. I've watched a few episodes over the last... I couldn't watch too many to prepare for this, to be completely honest with you, but... I refuse to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> there, It's just bad writing again. Even with what they create, there's something there they could have played with. But it's just... It's what you said. It was so bad that we were watching it and thinking she was a bad actor. But her command style was... Do you remember this episode... The one where there was a, a big problem and they had a bunch of meetings and they talked about it a lot and they argued <laughs> a little. And then uh, Captain Janeway out of absolutely nowhere came up with this uh, radical new idea while sitting on the bridge. And they said to her, Captain Janeway, that po can't possibly work. It's so wrong. And she said, do it. And they said, OK. And then Tuvok would say, this is pretty illogical. And Harry Kim would say, I have one job on this ship. It's stupid, but I'm going to do it. He always used to read off of his screen from all I could tell. And then it would work. And then they'd say, great, Captain. I can't wait till that happens again. You're brilliant. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's like that it is not earned. So I feel like my fix for it, because I, I got to say, the first season at least, I watched it all the way through back in the day. I never missed an episode, except there was one I kept missing. There's always one that I keep missing for some reason. And that means I watched it, and I probably rewatched it. And then uh, I know I watched it to do the reviews for my blog. So, you know, one a day. So I've seen Voyager two or three times in its entirety. Whenever I start watching it, it's like like that first season. It's like, oh, the Janeway I hated. She's not there yet. I like the, the Janeway that we get at the beginning. And then they, they suddenly she morphs into this, the, the very description of the episode, the generic episode that you gave us. Right. That's what she becomes. You know, at, at, at its worst, it's the two Vicks episode, which I know somebody wants to do an episode <laughs> about uh, just that question. But she becomes this unreasonable kind of battle axe. They give her that mother-daughter relationship with Seven, which I don't think helps anything because she's even more stern with her. So sometimes Janeway is just unreasonable. And even in her unreasonableness... She wins. So I don't know what the lesson is there. And I, I think if I were to fix it, my one fix is I don't change the character. If you're going to harden her up and make her arrogant, I want her to be humbled. I want her to lose a lot more. I want her to have an arc where she's become, has a feeling of being invulnerable and always right. And she's making hard decisions. And now she's not seeing the forest for the trees. And I want her to fail and realize that that her approach is wrong, that she's ignored the wrong people, all her advisors, and then learn from that. And then 
change her attitude again. It's normal. You know, they're out there. They're going to have psychological problems. They're going to make bad decisions. But every bad decision they make turns out to be the right one, the way these things are written. Exactly. It's like in order to write a strong female character, you have to start with a strong character. You have to start with a character. And she's not a character as much as she's a collection of traits that aren't let much to do something. I think when she what she sort of morphs into what you're talking about, it's a symptom of what they do with everybody. When you take an aggregate every single time she wins, she's suddenly this, this wunderkind who is like the best thing since Kirk and always winning and always doing these things. And because that's what the show's uh, setup is. They're in a situation. They can't figure out what to do. Janeway fixes it. Well, if that's your only defining feature is that you're good at things, then you're Wesley Crusher in season one. Mm-hmm. You, you can, Which was not good. <laughs> right. I don't mind that she's that good. I would love her to be that awesome, but, but explore that. You know, because, I mean, everyone should be this good. They're Starfleet. I mean, they're in the space Navy in the universe that has space amoebas in there. They're really, really good at what they do because they're still alive (laughs) because this place is dangerous. But if I was going to change it, I would be like, I would really just play up the uber competence leading into it, but also do it in a way that she make the uber competence is all about the fact that she's an expert on the Maquis or maybe on the Bajoran Cardassian War. That's where her wheelhouse is. And that's why she's here, you know, on the Badlands mission, because she's brought in because of her expertise, maybe to do some diplomacy. That then they could have had something to play with later or whatever. And then suddenly she's thrown into this brand new situation and all of her skills are useless. That everything that she's trained to do and all of these things can't do a thing where she's at. But then and the whole show gets to be an exploration of her realizing that her old skills still work here, but she just has to figure out how to reapply them. That would be a fascinating story and it would i would love i would be re-watching it over and over again if it was that one of the things they were aiming for with the show uh, obviously with the cast is diversity Mm -hmm. because okay we we've done a uh well picard is not the the typical either you know we've had an older man he's supposed to be he's european instead of american we're changing this up from the original series uh then the captain is an african-american now the captain is going to be a woman for the you know, for the first time. So they are trying at diversity. I, I think they stumble. The worst of this is Chakotay. So let's talk about Chakotay because we've never had, except in the comics, a Native American. Oh, and it's in Bear Claw. <laughs> so, so how does Chakotay do for you? Just to speak to the larger point of what you were talking about, about slotting in diversity, though. Because, you know, it's I was thinking about that a lot. And I remember that was the big complaint at the time especially even before it started. People would complain about it being a female captain and all of that. It was uh, referred to as being, what, too PC or too politically correct, which is a term still used for it. But I got to put the sociology jacket on for one second (laughs) just because it's an interesting term and it was used differently then when it was a term used to critique than it is now. And it's kind of weird how that goes. So I just want to define what we're talking about here it's like the term was first uh, came up in the early 80s and it was used by leftists as kind of a self-check it was a self-derogatory oh i'm being a little bit too unbending unwielding when it with my you know use of these i was acting like a politician who is trying to pander to votes it was the unflinchingness of it or the lack of genuinity 
that that was the term. But suddenly in the 90s, right about here, uh, it was an attack on the new left. It was used as saying that and it became more about the content itself as being the politically correct thing and that needed to be attacked. They were creating this sort of narrative that there was this group of people that were saying, we must do this and we must be this diverse because it is the politically correct thing to do. Well, there never was such a thing. That kept going on and, and you had two different groups of people that were using the same term in different ways, but all they knew it was negative. It wound up muddying up the public sphere to the point that it's very hard to talk about that sort of thing without having somebody on either side getting really, you know, getting mad at anything you're going to say. Well, I think if we're talking about like the propaganda machine on the right is very good at weaponizing the words created by the left. Absolutely. That's they do a lot of that. So they'll, they'll mangle the meaning of a term to use it against their political opponents. Right. But when we're talking about political correctness, to me, diversity is important. And to me, it is important for a show like Star Trek to feature women in leadership roles, to feature uh, people of color, to feature different ethnicities, to feature people who are disabled, uh, which I think Discovery is doing very well with, you know, mm -hmm. as far as diversity. We can even compare those two shows because one of them does it correctly and the other one does it incorrectly. And I think Voyager, they are casting across a broad spectrum of ethnic groups. Great. But then they don't do anything with those characters. So is Kim an important Asian-American figure in television? No. You know, it's like they, they did nothing with him. And we could say the same with Chakotay. Well, I mean, it's worse for Chakotay because to me, Chakotay is a generic Native American from a tribe that does not exist with an ensemble of cultural traits and traditions that are just created by white people to be generic Indian. Exactly. And that, to tie it to that, which I'll get to in one second, but I think the crux of what everybody's issue is, is, is and it's a conversation that's hard to have because of the muddiness of it, is we're talking about the role of tokenism in the greater um, conversation of diversity, about how tokenism is a, some would, there's an argument or uh, that says that what happens or what needs to happen, I'd say it's more what happens is you first have tokenism. You have to have tokenism to get people used to the idea before you can then have true diversity and it's all a process. And the evidence for that is every time that they try any kind of tokenism, it's the same people making the same argument, no matter what stage you're in. The argument, the people, the things people were saying about Discovery when the cast was made were the same thing that people were saying about when Voyager's cast was done, mm -hmm. when Deep Space Nine was done, probably when Uhura was on the show. Probably. It's all that. But this was, on purpose, probably the most ethnically diverse uh, TV show of the time. Which is really goes to show how white and male television was then. Doesn't seem like that long ago, but wow. But I I buy your point on it. And just to look at it by itself on this, you're seeing, well, yes, it's diverse, but is it? <laughs> or is it like to make white people feel better diverse? And that's where Chicote comes in here. Because when you're talking about representation of a Native American or American Indians or First Nations people, that becomes its own thing. Because I don't know if you know this, but neither of our countries have been very nice to Natives over the course of our history. I am quite aware. Did you hear that? Yeah. What we're also, what we're talking about here is both, so there's two things. There's the Native American, which is a real people with real experience. And then there's Indians, TV Indians, which are a creation 
And there are so few Native Americans that anything that's done for them is not pandering to them because there aren't enough of them to pander to. There are not enough of them to make a sizable demographic. It's extraordinarily sad. So whenever you see them, it winds up being several decades behind other represented groups. So my friend Matt, who is a, a full-blooded American Indian, I, I was talking to him about Chicote in this, and he likes Chicote, and he says most of the people, most of the Indians in his family, the people that he knows, they tend to like him, but they also all call him Space Tonto. Mm. They they like that he exists because they are in the point of tokenism that black people were in in the 1960s when they had to be happy that there was a black guy in the background of a Spider-Man comic. Yeah. Derek William Crabb has been on the show before, and he's uh, part a Native American, and Chicote is one of his favorite characters. Yeah. Because he's seeing himself or a version of himself, it's not as good as if he'd been from an actual tribe, if he'd, if he'd been researched and written as an, a proper Native That's American. That's exactly it. And, and plus the fact that they felt the need to make him a representation of his race when they didn't with any of the other races. If you want to establish that this is the future and races are just people, then why is the Indian the only guy who acts like an Indian and who has spiritual stuff and has a special issue with pan flutes, you know, and spirit guides? And Janeway's the only person she can go to for advice is him because he has spiritual knowledge, which is non-rational. It's, it's another other that they have to use to represent the spiritual side because, you know, the Federation is supposedly moved past that nonsense. But apparently with Indians, it's still real. Just a whole ton of it. And it wasn't. It did, wasn't made any better by the fact that... Oh, what's the actor that played Chicote? Robert... Uh, Robert Beltran, yeah. Thank you. He was Mexican-American, which he also made a bit worse by trying to play up his Mexican-Indian ancestry, which considering that um, Chicote is playing generic Plains Indian, you're basically say, trying to say that any Indian is as good as any other. And so... That's where you are. It's it's somewhere riding out the tokenism to diversity thing. And as a historical moment, you have to recognize the importance. But as a person trying to watch and enjoy a TV show, especially years later, it's very, very cringe-inducing. Well, even then for me, because on Canadian television, there's many more indigenous peoples having roles on shows. We got Graham Greene and that's it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, we, I mean, I, I've seen natives on television fiction since I was a kid. You know, like uh, beachcombers and that kind of stuff. So, oh, sure. to me, it was it was seemed normal. And also, I went to school with uh, Native Canadians. So, so once we see Chicote show up there, it's like, what is this fabrication? Right. What is this? Where we're so afraid of naming a particular culture that we're just gonna create a, a blender culture and maybe in the future you know maybe people have lost touch with their cultures they've recreated a culture it's possible 300 years later who knows but that is not explored and and chakotay eventually his heritage sort of yeah. disappears from the show yeah they did the space aliens thing and then they stopped talking about it oh yeah oh god oh geez oh flash <laughs> Flashback. When we're looking at old things in terms of racism and sexism and excusing things because of the time frame, which, you know, we should look at everything in the context of what it is, but we should also then look at attempts at diversity in the context of where it was. So if you ask me what I'd do different, I'd say keep doing what you're doing and try to get better. Because if we, I'd say if we didn't have Voyager, we never, we wouldn't have been able to get to Discovery. What about Neelix and Kess? Uh, what, what did the Delta Quadrant have to offer? <laughs> <laughs> as far as let's put alien characters let's let's have a quark and a garrick on there and they will be from the delta quadrant and we'll we'll experience what the delta quadrant is 
through these heroic characters from that area. A space troll and a space elf, basically. Dismissed. That's a Starfleet expression for get out. <laughs> oh, jeez. I, I get nothing. Yeah, <laughs> no, they're flawed from Inception. Right. They were flawed from Inception. And they were a terrible idea, and it didn't get any better as it went. And then Kess was gone, and then Neelix was uh, even less useful, and then he left the show in the last season. At the very, very end, yeah. Maybe he's like, he missed like three episodes. He never got to the Alpha Quadrant, basically it. Right. Well, Kess was always surplus to requirements, except as an interpreter for Neelix, in a way. I think the fix here would be that he needed to be more of a rascal. He needed to be less friendly. Or if he's comic relief, then don't have Kess at all. Mm -hmm. It's like when you you know a couple and one one of them is really irascible. So there is the – one of them is the – ambassador for the couple <laughs> yeah that was sort of it that, that was sort of how they were kind of playing it and eventually she would drift away from him but the entire premise of it the looks are ridiculous and the okampa don't make any sense that's they, yeah yeah they live for nine years it's, it's like they were setting it up for kes to be an old woman by the end of the show i don't know the okampas from beginning to end were badly conceived and it was such a major point of the pilot that the show was dooming itself from the beginning, probably. Yes, there just wasn't anything interesting. Mostly, there wasn't anything different about them. We'll get to the bit later about the bad guys and all this, but there wasn't anything particularly about any of these cultures they were encountering that would have made them different from anybody they would have met on a crappy episode of Next Generation. I mean, even their universal translators even work immediately with everyone they meet. I can buy that in the Alpha Quadrant somehow, you know, if you want to hand wave that, but there's been no communication with these. The language uh, gener- you know, what goes into making their own language, it should be Darmok every week. But yet we can speak to each other like that. Our screens can work against each you know, our view screens can interact with each other. I can't even get my Mac to interact with my PC and both of those were made on Earth. But that's a different <laughs> rank. Why have these aliens at all if they're just going to be... Talaxian culture is, is very close to... It just, could just be human culture. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's just no... There's no real... And then the Ocampans have like a biological absurdity that never really pays off. Then they turn into a psychic and they do all these sorts of things to try to make her interesting. There's nothing too unusual. Well, let's talk about the other aliens in the Delta Quadrant then. No. The villains, uh, whether they recurred or didn't, well, many of them did for mm-hmm. a while. Uh, the Kazon or Klingon Light, the, the Vidians, the Malon. So we got to see a number of them. I, I will give the show credit. They tried. Here's how I, I picture them in the world of, of Trek, in the, okay. the Great Trek metaphor. So in the Great Trek metaphor, the Starfleet is the, the, the Western world. The Klingons used to be the Soviet bloc, or well, I guess they still are. Uh, but they're, they're supposed to be Russia and China. And there was a Cold War and all of this stuff. Okay. That's the, the big metaphor. Because the Romulans are sort of, they're sort of weird because they're supposed to be the Roman Empire or something. You know, they don't fit the real world metaphor. And then they went rapidly from being the space Romans to just space assholes. <laughs> And then, when you look at Deep Space Nine, you've got the Bajorans, or more or less Israel, the Jews, and you've got uh, the Cardassians, are supposed to be like space Nazis. You know, they're a bit more complex than that, because we explored them so much. Mm -hmm. 
And then there's like the Gamma Quadrant. And is the Gamma Quadrant supposed to be like the Middle East? Because, I don't know, they're on a, they're on a jihad kind of stuff. That's the kind of idea that's going on there. So when we got to the Delta Quadrant, it was like, what are they in the great Star Trek metaphor? And I felt like they were the third world. Resource poor. Yeah. The Kazon are war. The Vidians are like trafficking in organs. The Malon are uh, extreme polluters. And then you can get to the Borg in there and say, well, the Borg and the assimilators and the, they are the Western powers just poaching everything out of Africa or out of South America. That was how I saw it. So whenever they introduced a new threat, it was like, yeah, it still fits my idea of what the Delta Quadrant is supposed to be in the great Star Trek metaphor. But I don't right. know if, if it actually makes sense, but I'll, I'll give them the credit in the way that each time they introduce something new, it still seemed to feel like it was part of that greater idea, even though they never talked about it. So I, I have no confirmation of it. Yeah, and if looked through that lens, it might be interesting for me for to explore it that way. They could have done a lot more with that while still just keeping that that concept you're talking about. If they would have made it more about that they're the way they are because the Borg have swept through them and taken all of their their good stuff, then sure. I mean, we're talking, but we're talking about a, a warp-faring race with the Kazon in which water is a scarce resource. That doesn't make any sense. Hydrogen and <laughs> oxygen are incredibly common elements, and you can make a warp drive. You can make water. I mean, if, if we can do it now. Yeah, we can make water now. Yeah, That's true. And, and I think one of the, the problems that they came up against is that they created enemies. They want to bring back those enemies. They've got the... You know, they've got the makeup appliances, they they got the costumes, they got the ships. You want to make them cost effective. Right. So you want to bring them back. But you can't bring them back because theoretically, Voyager is running away from them more and more. It's like they're years of warp travel away from the Kazon, away from the Vidians. So you've got to leave all those cultures behind. Whatever you create, you got to leave mm -hmm. eventually. So, and sometimes they would find a way to not make them leave so much. And then, of course, Borg space was a particular problem because Borg space shows up all the time. It's like you're never out of Borg space, apparently, once you hit it. Uh, so I'm wondering if um, if the show would have worked better if you would have built seasons around each of these villains. That You know, you're, you've got a Kazon year, you've got a Vidian year, you've got a Malon year. Oh, you're a Borg, couple years. I think that would have worked just fine if you're going to keep the basic structure. I mean, there wasn't any, anything inherently bad about any of these these species they created it's just they didn't we didn't get enough time with them i mean they didn't they didn't have enough time with the Kazons to make them anything more than just klingon knockoffs and they could have really especially with the Kazons in the beginning you had a whole season arc you could have built around that you know whether or not we had instituted any any of the other things we were talking about but there were a number of reasons you'd want to keep them around there especially since janeway just blew up the array which was the only thing that was protecting the Okapans from these people. And then they kind of just booked it off toward the Alpha Quadrant without telling anybody. So maybe they should have hung around a little bit to try to make sure that the Okapans were going to be all right. And that would have led to some more reasons to bump into them all the time. Were the Borg overused? Yes. <laughs> That's your answer. <laughs> well, let's see. Let's just talk about this. How many episodes in The Next Generation featured the Borg? Let's a handful. See handful yeah. uh in voyager there were 20 10 of them prominently and that's not counting that you had seven of nine as a cast member right, exactly i'm not saying don't feature the borg because of course they had to 
They're in the Delta Quadrant. You know, they could have done something. But why not, after all of that time, just find a way to just have them end the Borg? Because if you keep the Borg around, it's stupid. I mean, they were already on their way down, in my opinion, due to first first contract had already done an um, irreparable damage to them that anything since then they just all of their mystique was gone and now they were just another evil race that was powerful and for me but if it rather than have them continually somehow be able to be defeated or escaped from with a ship that was far less powerful than the than the ships we had seen get completely annihilated by the borg on several occasions it just didn't work. Well, it's Invincible Janeway again. It's Invincible Janeway again. And that's the problem. If you're going to use the Borg, you have to write it in a way that, that they're able to get, a, get away from it. And you wind up with this. And it, beca- it became all about people are going to watch the Borg because the Borg are popular. And they had the, the Dalek problem, overuse of them. I mean, every time I hear exterminate for the first time when the Daleks haven't been there for a while, I get the same chilled. But nine times out of ten, I'm sick of them by the end of the show because after you show... David Tennant being able to beat an entire fleet of them, where do you go? No, but I, I agree, because uh, the Daleks are exactly, even though the, the Borg are supposed to be the Cybermen, um, <laughs> actually, but you need to have the Daleks. They're part of the popularity of the show. But what is the best Dalek episode? Genesis of the Daleks, which features almost no Daleks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to talk about one of the, my major, major writing problem with Voyager, and I think I, I think I, I've discerned what the source of it is, and that's over reliance on techno babble. You don't say. Mm. <laughs> There's so many. Uh, it's not just that problems are fixed with techno babble; they are also caused by techno babble. And sometimes the problem itself is techno babble. So that <laughs> it's like, and you know that in the script, it's just written techno babble in brackets because I've seen those scripts. Yeah, that's. I mean, that was Lavar Burton's creation because he was <laughs> yeah. able to. Do it and it was awesome but yeah i i think i know where you're going with this make techno babble mean something in the next generation they use techno babble a lot we just said but you know what warp core that's technically techno babble right but it's a techno babble that i know what it means i can tell what warp core is i can tell what rerouting power through the deflector dish to do something is if you're able to map out for me that i can just sort of follow what you're doing then it feels like something's accomplished with Voyager, it could have been anything. I mean, ha- there were so many episodes that something external was causing the ship to shake, and there they were. And Jane Wage um, yelling, he goes, like, remodulate the phase inducers. Oh, I'm doing it. There's no effect. Reverse the polarity. Reversing polarity. And then Tom Paris would say some other, and then they'd be out. Some kind of masking circuitry. Some kind of cascade feedback. Some kind of deflection system. Some kind of dimensional distortion. Some sort of magnetic disturbance. Some type of energetic vapor some kind of superconducting plasma some kind of plasma particles some sort of biochemical bomb some type of chromodynamic module some kind of interstellar dust cloud some sort of axonal amplifier some kind of unstable interfold layer with some kind of psychotropic agent some kind of monotanium armor plating some kind of elaborate kinetic transfer system some kind of polytrinic alloy some kind of modulating pulse some kind of power source some kind of power source some kind of power signature it's also that the science didn't make any sense anything <laughs> could happen you could fix anything with a with, with a transporter beam the worst of the episodes is the one where Janeway and Paris become salamanders <laughs> the only episode that's been actually declared non-canon I believe uh, well I'm sorry but it's right there in oh, the yeah. it's on the DVDs it's gotta count they find a way to go to warp 10, which 
means that they would be <laughs> simultaneously everywhere in the universe at once. And also salamanders. And and it turns them into salamanders. It, it de-evolves them into salamanders. And then they have babies. And then it re-evolves them in, back into people. And nobody would ever mention... Let's never mention this again, that Janeway and Tom <laughs> Paris had a brood of salamanders on some planet somewhere. How, what is this episode? It's Can complete nonsense. very, very brief and incredibly nerdy specific criticism about that episode? If you buy the fact that being able to evolve quickly as an individual is a thing, which it's not. That's not how evolution works. It happens slowly over generations. But let's just buy the premise that over the course of Magic Warp 10 stuff, you evolve to a certain point. You're able to do that. What they would be evolving to be, if evolution isn't progression towards some sort of thing that's set, it's an adaptation to your environment. So if we were going to accept that they could evolve to that, they would evolve to beings that could fly the shuttlecraft better. They wouldn't be salamanders. <laughs> no, it's it's nonsense and there's a, a whole lot of that like yeah, episodes that you cannot explain what's going on because you know the thing that happens is tech that is caused by tech and then later solved by tech and you have no idea. And I think the source of this is that they badly calibrated the cast of characters by making and I think the the major problem is that they made Janeway a scientist. Kirk is a soldier. I mean, they're more well-rounded than this, but he's a soldier, where um, Picard is a diplomat. Cisco is a community builder, although he did have a background in engineering. Janeway's a scientist, and she comes back to this a lot. And so she's a scientist. Kim at Ops is a scientist. Tuvok, even though he's security, because he's a Vulcan, keeps being treated as a scientist. Uh, the Doctor is very tech-minded because he's an artificial being. Seven comes in, and she's a super scientist. And Tom Paris can do anything. And Tom Paris, of course, is a super engineer to match Bellana, who is a super engineer. You know, I look at Discovery today, and it's like they replaced Technobabble with anthropology, sociology, that kind of stuff. It's like Michael Burnham is solving things left and right using what she's learned of other cultures and it works because you can even though you don't know what she's talking about you can tell what she's talking about it's still babble when when michael burnham does this i mean discovery's got its own problems they all these shows have their own problems yeah because it's season two this had the seven seasons and the problems existed in the first season still existed in the seventh season i think it became worse and worse the techno babble thing because they started doing a whole lot of time travel episodes or temporal anomaly episodes, and those are rife with technobabble stuff. Anything can happen because technobabble. So nothing matters because technobabble. And I mean, the fix is pretty simple. Stop doing that. Yes, don't, don't do that. <laughs> right. Or at least make it mean something. You know, yeah. when you use it, make it interesting don't babble but babble is probably is happening well have you tried babbling i don't know well i have to still babble from before but babbling <laughs> will be a thing i will try soon i can't babble anymore sir you know. <laughs> uh, well this brings us to the ending of the show because you, you need a big payoff uh, i think tng had a nice two nice pay well no one nice payoff and one not so nice payoff uh, but they did go into movies so i mean the adventure continues deep space nine they paid it off within the show and i think it was like a huge payoff for voyager they decided to go epic as well and you know first we see voyager come back it's there on earth but it's like oh, i don't know i don't remember the, the, the number of years like 16 years after they they were lost less time than it's been now you know yes yeah. in real life but anyway. <laughs> yeah yeah but i mean they found ways to take shortcuts and here they are 
Some of them have died. Some of them are older. Some of them have uh, have changed. It's like the changes that they should have undergone in the seven years uh, are suddenly, bam, it's done. You know, relationships exist. and Every time they do an alternate future, that happens. There's always development. You know, they're... They, the actors seem are obviously having a great time with it because they get to play with this stuff and then it never then it gets reset i've got more to say later but you keep yeah. going about but this. so they reset that it's like oh this is the the ending yeah for a second there i thought there was a glimmer of hope where uh-huh. we're gonna see bam they jump 16 years 20 years whatever it is uh, what the show should have done at other points maybe but the finale instead of saying oh we found a shortcut after seven years you know or a number of ways they could go they could have just said the adventure continues and voyager never came back we see them come back in 16 years time but then in the present time frame they never come back but we know that they will be returning and look pocketbooks fill those years you there know you go. yeah but so instead admiral janeway is kind of pissed about the the way it all turned out uh she can't take you know, Seven's death or whatever. So she goes back in time and uh, she's even more powerful Janeway, even more irresponsible <laughs> Janeway, even more unreasonable Janeway. <laughs> and she convinces the other Janeway, more or less, to uh, to completely change history. And, uh, and then they destroy the entire Borg collective. Yep. Boom. Done. The end. Yeah. It, this is like, a William Shatner book, because that happened there as well. <laughs> that did. Uh, <laughs> I liked that one for its, what it was. but that's Yeah, for what it was. But you know it as William Shatner fanfic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so here, this happens. And then not only do, do they fix the problems that you know Admiral Janeway had, uh, invalidating her entire last so many years, but then Voyager comes back, heralded as heroes. It only took seven years to come back. Boom. And even so, they come back, we see a fleet of ships meeting them, the end. No epilogue, no nothing, no nothing. No kidding, not even a nice to see you, son, after shoehorning in uh, Tom Paris's daddy issues. Yeah, because they apparently needed more for nothing. He's on the screen in the last shot. He's there, not even... And all of this has to happen at the same time as Bolana's giving birth. It's like, rush to the end. When you could have done all of this... I don't know. <laughs> Over the course of the- Okay, so what is the perfect ending for Voyager? What should have they done? Well, the short answer again is not that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's... God, it's... Because they're so married to the status quo that they jettisoned this, their new status quo to restore the old status quo. <laughs> it completely invalidates the idea of what Star Trek is supposed to be. So Star Trek is supposed to be about a future that we can recognize that we can see things in our present that we can strive for in the future, which will be great. It's not going back to the past and fixing the past so that your present can be good. That is a complete misreading of your mission statement on that. Plus, dear God, how many untold people did you theoretically murder? But the other thing that's wrong with it, besides all of that nonsense is both next generation and deep space nine, their pilots and their finales were bookends. Because that's a smart thing to do with a long series with a beginning, a middle, and an end. You had Q, and then you had Q. You had the the prophets, you had the prophets. They had something set up in the pilot that was obviously originally supposed to come back to. You know, with the with the caretaker and the second caretaker and the second array, which could have been a nice bookend, and then maybe 
validated Janeway's decision to blow up a thing and strand up all the crew there rather than set up timer but none of that they couldn't do that because they'd already ruined that in the show come up with something there it doesn't have to be epic time travel if you need to or carry on with what you've been doing if you need to get them home in the last episode have it be some sort of joint effort between bolana and barkley or tom paris and barkley since he can do everything you'd gone so far as to bring barkley in which um, was a little more interesting because at least we it felt more Star Trek-y then. But other than that, all I can say is go as far away from what you did as possible and do that instead. I think maybe I would have liked to see at least part of this last season or maybe within the one finale, I would have liked to see the promise of a generational ship fulfilled. So mm-hmm. we get hints of that. I think that would have been really more interesting to see that let's show them come back, but let's do it with you know, with dissolves. Let's see that last reel, that third act, after we've defeated the enemies or whatever, that third act be the long voyage home that is probably full of adventures that we're not we're not gonna see, but that can be explored in books or comics. But when they finally get there, you know, it's an older Janeway or you know the uh, the kids like Noemi Wildman and all that are are grown up and are part of the crew, just like they are at the beginning of that finale before they undo it. It felt like the culmination of every problem that we talked about mm-hmm. sort of crashing together to rush to the end. And there's a dreaded reset button. There's plenty of techno babble. There's the uh, uber competent uh, Janeway. There's the plug in uh, interest, the Chakotay 7 relationship out of nowhere. Suddenly they're in love. So I guess if we're talking about a perfect ending for this series, as we've been describing it, I guess they hit all of the marks. So it gave us our expectation, our status quo, as we would expect. <laughs> exactly. It is is actually the perfect finale because it is all the problems that the show had. <laughs> I mean, maybe we should thank uh, Voyager because, um, you know, after Deep Space Nine wrapped, uh, Ron Moore went over to Voyager and uh, had such a bad time of it. He wrote like three of the best episodes, but <laughs> he had such a bad time of it. He went out on his own and created Battlestar Galactica or recreated Battlestar Galactica, which is Voyager done right? Uh, yes, I think so. I, I think as the Pegasus stuff especially, I think there might have been some deliberate commentary on how they didn't do things. Mm, I mean... That, that is also a Voyager episode. Uh, they're the two-part Equinox. Yeah! Is basically uh, meeting the Pegasus. And uh, the, the commander has made some weird compromises uh, you know, and uh, turns out they're using Cylons as part of the power source or, <laughs> or equivalent, like worms or whatever. But yeah, I mean, there are a lot of similarities between, because Ron Moore worked on Star Trek for so long, you will find TNG and Deep Space Nine and Voyager ideas. And maybe there's just so many ideas you can do with space opera but that do relate. But it is a more desperate show. It is a deadlier show. It is a, uh, you know, uh, I think they're... They're doing the Lost in Space correctly in that one. But, of course, it's also a retread of a 1970s property. And so they're using elements from that. It's not it's not the same show. But I feel like a lot of my fixes for Voyager kind of 
come from my love of the new Battlestar. I'm generally a, a like of it. I like both of them. I, I, I guess I like all kinds of shows about Mormons in space. So I like the old and the new Battlestar Galactica. So. We do want to say we watched it all. It was still Star Trek. It is still Star Trek. And anybody who's, who tries to do a it's not Star Trek, I think you're kind of missing the point. I mean, I can't hate Voyager anymore than I can hate Spock's brain. It does what it does. It created characters. Sometimes those characters weren't very well received. Sometimes the plots were dumb, but they are part of Star Trek. And now it's like with Picard coming out, Seven of Nine is in Picard. I am very excited about that because I'm very excited to find out what happened to Seven of Nine between Voyager and now. I wouldn't care about that if they hadn't done something right. But, I mean, it would be the same with any character of Voyager besides maybe Neelix, screw him. But if any character of Voyager pops up on Picard, I'm going to be interested. I'm going to be interested to see what, they, what they've what they been through, all of these things. It's all part of Star Trek for me. So even though it wasn't my favorite and some of the stuff I think we point out is just definitely, definitively bad it's still kind of good. There are good episodes in there. Yeah, there are. And there are good characters. And I think when I was criticizing the show for catering to certain characters and not at all to others, well, those characters that got catered to are good characters. Seven of Nine is a good character. And the Doctor is a good character. And, you know, there were good things in there for Tuvok or Tom Paris. or. Right. But generally, that meant that a lot of other characters suffered. And I think you can almost feel it in the actors' performances that this week, again, they got nothing to do. Yeah, and I mean, with Chakotay and Harry Kim, especially. Yeah, yeah. Although Garrett Wang has his own issues with Rick Berman, apparently, that led to a lot of that. But that's an entire different conversation. That's Depending on who you ask, there were different people that were not getting along with different other people. Well, Wang and, um, and Beltran have been very vocal about mm-hmm. their time on Voyager and, and having had a, a bad experience. Yep, and it seems to be a wrap mostly around with Wang, at least, about not being able to direct, I think. Was the mm. that's the core of his problem? But okay. you can't have a large cast that does a show for seven years without that kind of thing starting up. I mean, without that kind of thing happening somewhere, they don't always become families. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, but yeah, no, it is still Star Trek. There are still some good characters and good events going on in there. I think it had a lot of promise going in. I feel it when I watch the early episodes, and then well, it, they sort of drop the ball or they become interested in the wrong things for me as a viewer. And I know some people grew up on it. Like, it was their Star Trek. It was the Star Trek when they were growing up. Sure. Uh, in the same way that some of us is the TOS or TNG uh, was the Star Trek. I get it. And I don't think I would be frustrated if it's not that I love Star Trek regardless of its iteration. Mm-hmm. That, I, that I'm that i there saying every iteration of Star Trek is valid. Because that's the sore point. That's the one that frustrated me. That's the one that I thought oh, it could be so much better. And yet, because it is Trek... I am still learning it by heart. I am still a trivia master. You know, I I still have to watch all of these episodes several times. And it's frustrating that it's not better. Right there with you, buddy. So, uh, having said all that, Jonathan Schaefer-Hames, what are you working on right now? What am I working on right now? I'm working on pretending that I have a schedule for future recording things. (laughs) No, we just got through doing a crossover on Married with Comics with my wife with uh, three other podcast that we do every october now it's a mephisto versus the podcasters but in this one we cover um sandman comics which was really fun but mostly uh we're up to various things you can find me uh with my wife on uh we do married with comics where we talk about whatever comes to mind and we also do the rod pod which we need to get back to 
which is us covering uh, the IDW Phase 2 Transformers series in order. And I also appear over in Longbox Crusades, speaking of Transformers, and do Transformers Chronicles the Marvel Years with Pat and Delvin over there, where we cover all the Marvel Transformers comics in order. So I'm overrun with Transformers stuff. And you can find any of that just by pointing your podcatcher thing to Married with Comics or look on Twitter or Facebook for the same terms. And you can find all of that there. All right. Well, thanks for uh, doing the show and uh, doing some research (laughs) (laughs) on a topic that is... I'm glad I could be here. I have not had as much fun talking in detail about something I do not like in quite some time. So, <laughs> Well, I know your food is growing cold at Neelix's Canteen, and I don't know if it tastes better that way. <laughs> so, Hard to say. Uh, Technobabble cheese. So uh, you should get on with that. I'll stick around for Subspace Transmissions. That's Star Trek news and listener feedback on our previous episode. Hi, John. Hi, Maggie. I'm still wrapping my brain around the fact that we're married. <laughs> Me too, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Aw. Well, hey, I was looking at these old comics and I noticed that there's Hold a Hold that thought. Why don't we talk about it on our podcast? We have a podcast? It seems like the logical next step. We get married, we change our names, we combine our comic collections, we start a podcast about comic books. Well, I can't fault your logic, but there are plenty of podcasts out there already. Do you really think we'll have anything new and interesting to say? Oh, I think we'll manage. Welcome to the Married with Comics podcast, where we constantly fuck up. (laughs) She goes from Marvel Girl to Phoenix to Marvel Girl to Jean Grey to Phoenix to Dead. (laughs) Um, And then apparently he's so consumed with his own thoughts that he runs right past three monkeys <laughs> in an alleyway. A brainwave camera took a picture of that guy's head. A brainwave camera. Oh, and Ben's just basically, whatever you gotta do to stop the commies, Nick. So join us at the Married with Comics podcast. We're two newlyweds with a love for comics intelligently, critically, and thoughtfully discuss comic books. Also listen as we goof around, make jokes, and make fun of John for mispronouncing names. I do that a lot. Sometimes we'll pick a topic and review and discuss comics that relate to the topic. And sometimes we'll pick up a comic and see what discussion topics come up. Sometimes we'll spend an entire episode talking about how much Maggie loves Batman. The only thing that's almost as strong as my love for you is my love for Batman. The Married with Comics podcast. Available directly on our site at marywcomics.libsyn.com, on iTunes, and wherever good podcasts are found. Also, check us out at Facebook at the Married with Comics podcast. We've got everything you need. In Star Trek news, Star Trek Four is apparently back on track with director Noah Hawley being courted by Paramount to helm the project. Holly created the Legion show for FX uh, and was showrunner on the Fargo series. It's not clear if Chris Hemsworth will return as Kirk's father or if plans have changed. Paramount reportedly had three scripts in contention, but the crew of the Kelvin timeline are all contracted to reappear. If Brent Spiner's android look in the Picard trailer looked weird to you, but you're not alone. Apparently, it's been tweaked in post-production. So... Expect something better. 
And a couple of non-fiction Star Trek books are out now that you might be interested in. The Official Guide to the Animated Series, a chapter of the franchise that hasn't historically gotten as much attention. The book is written by Aaron Harvey and Rich Shepis uh, and uses interviews with the people involved to tell the story of how it came to be and was produced. And also acts as a handy episode guide with lots of color reproductions, sketches, and so on. I don't mind telling you I've bought a copy. An even more niche topic is one chronicled in The Musical Touch of Leonard Nimoy by Darlene and Joe Lacey, which documents Leonard Nimoy's recording career. If you're a big Trekkie, you're aware of um, The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins and other quote-unquote hits by the man who created Spock. And this fun book covers all five albums. Yes, he recorded five with uh, really with love and gentle humor. Check it out. And now a selection of your comments on our previous episode, the second part of our full TNG review. Rob Kelly called it a Herculean achievement. He didn't mean the show. He meant listening to the entire episode in just one day. Uh, he also says he remembers watching TNG's final season as it aired and never forgave the show for what it did to Ensign Rowe, one of his favorite characters. Luckily, he says the final episode is so very good. Brian Linton says congratulations on another Tour the Force review episode. I haven't watched TNG in ages, so this was a great stroll or perhaps forced march down memory lane. I was actually surprised by how many of these episodes I was able to remember as you covered them. In particular, I found that Darmok stood out as the most memorable episode from these seasons in my mind. You know, same for me. Chris Franklin says, a colossal undertaking. Siskoid, it took me several work days of stopping and starting to make it through all four hours, but I enjoyed every minute and kept wanting to get back to it when I was interrupted by actual work. You have made me want to go back and rewatch all the high-rated episodes, and I really am itching to rewatch First Contact again. What a great movie. Well, you know, Chris, it took me several days to record and edit it myself. <laughs> uh, and I'm hoping to watch First Contact again, along with a number of the the big tentpole episodes slash movies from TNG, because uh, just in time for the Picard show. Then we have David S. Gutierrez, who thought Kirk deserved a better send-off than what he got in Generations. He says, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but Jerry Ryan's on record as saying Insurrection was written with a part for her by which he means, I guess, Seven of Nine, she turned it down and eliminated one of the TNG characters to make room for her. I would bet it was Jordy or Bev. Well, if Seven had you know, as, as much screen time as Bev in Insurrection, it wouldn't have hardly been worth it for her to appear at all. Uh, Tim Price says, I would listen to a snippet here and there while trying to keep up with other podcasts I listened to, but then I had my big car trip day and knew what I'd play the whole time, which helped my trip immensely. So thank you for the entertainment. Stellar job. I don't know when I'd have time, but you've given me the hankering to rewatch my favorite TNGs from those seasons, which are too many to mention. Thank you for rekindling my feelings for the show. So guys, give me another, I don't know, six months to recover. <laughs> and we'll do the same thing with Deep Space Nine, I promise. You know, the Fire and Water Podcast Network now has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. So if you like this content and want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. It even unlocks rewards. For example, for $5 a month, you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations lists. Like... Ensign's John and Maggie Schaefer-Hames and Lieutenant Junior Grade Doug Van Diver. Thanks, guys, for your contribution and for flying us through a 40-year journey safely in a mere seven years. 
Join Doug, John, Maggie, and I in the fleet at patreon.com. As usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter where we are FW Podcasts. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. to some types of EM radiation, some form of Omicron radiation, some kind of radiation, some kind of polarized magnetic variation, some kind of radical reconfiguration, some kind of auto regeneration, some kind of randomly fluctuating modulation, some sort of mutation, some kind of Kazon fortification, some kind of thermolytic reaction, some kind of reaction, some sort of orifice.